As most of you are aware, we have been, as I said earlier in the service, working our way through the Old Testament book of Isaiah. And if you have it with you, could you turn with me please to Isaiah chapter 61 as we read the first three verses. Then we're jumping towards the end of the section at verses 10 and 11. Most of you are aware that Isaiah was writing around 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And as we come to chapter 61, he lays out for us much of the ministry of Jesus that not only will speak to his own generation, but subsequent generations down through the centuries. And so in Isaiah 61, we're beginning at verse 1. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. And provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. And then to verse 10, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up and the garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading from his holy word. Over the past summer, I found myself reading historical biographies or books about historical figures. And since then, I have immersed myself in people like Frederick Douglass, George Washington, Ulysses Grant, more contemporary, of course, Dr. Billy Graham. I read two books uh, in the fall, one relating to Tim Scott and Trey Gowdy's, both of which I thoroughly enjoyed. I also delved into, at some length, in fact, Abraham Lincoln, and then Associate Justice of the Supreme Court, uh, Neil Gorsuch, and FDR. And my most recent has been on Adolf Hitler. And as I worked my way through each of those books, the one question that was in the back of my mind, especially with Washington, was this. What was he really like? As I would move from one section to another, I tried to ask again and again, what was he really like? Several years ago, I visited his home at Mount Vernon, 
And I stood in the doorway of his study and it's roped off, but you can see inside, you can see his desk and his chair where he sat, several books on the shelf, maps are scattered around the place. And as I moved from his study to his dining room, then upstairs into his bedroom and toured the house with all the other tourists, eventually in the kitchen and then the hall and reception area, I began to ask myself again and again, What was he really like at home? What was he like when he was with his closest friends? What was he like with family members? What was it like to live in those extraordinary days? And how did he respond to the crisis that was coming his way again and again and again and threatened to overwhelm him on multiple occasions. And over the last couple of Sundays and this morning and into next Sunday, I've also been asking myself those questions about Isaiah. What was he really like? We know him, of course, as one of the five major prophets A very extensive book. But as a young man, what was he like? I imagine that Isaiah had most of his life mapped out for him. Old Testament scholars tell us he was born and raised in Judah, which was the southern kingdom when ancient Israel was split into two kingdoms, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Probably in and around Jerusalem was his home. Came from a wealthy family, from all we can understand. He would have hopes and dreams and desires like everyone else. But his life changed forever. And we saw it a couple of weeks ago in Isaiah chapter 6. When he was in the temple in Jerusalem... And had an experience, an encounter with God that few people ever have. And the passage tells us this in Isaiah chapter 6. I saw the Lord. I saw him face to face. And in that moment, Isaiah tells us that the holiness and the wonder and the grace of God overwhelmed him and changed him forever. In fact, he said it was as if the whole earth heaved under my feet and doorposts and walls began to shake and move with the glory and wonder and holiness of God. Would you like to have been there? Would you have liked to shadow Isaiah during his life? Just to stand in the background and watch. How did he respond to the call of God? What was his prayer life like? What did he do in days of tension and difficulty of which he faced several? What was he really like? And so this morning, as we make our way through Isaiah, hold that question in your mind. And as Isaiah writes, what we've discovered over the last few Sundays, of course, is this. 
that he writes in a manner that is almost a spiritual metaphor. There is one great spiritual peak after another, after another, after another. And in typical fashion, as you read and immerse yourself in Isaiah, it is like climbing a mountain. And by the time you get to the top, you look back over a spectacular trail that you've come, and then you discover there are numerous peaks still to investigate, still to explore, still to journey through. And as we come to chapter 61 this morning, I trust that will be exactly your experience as we come again to look at some of the major themes in Isaiah that will speak into our lives this morning. Isaiah knew, of course, of the rise and fall of Assyria, Babylon, the Persian Empire. He was conscious of his own culture and all that was taking place. And if you were with us a couple of Sundays ago, we tried to focus on Isaiah not simply writing for his own generation, but writing in a prophetic sense for subsequent generations. And last Sunday we saw it in chapter 53, one of those four suffering servant songs that Isaiah is well known for. And if you were with us, you remember we said you find it in chapter 42 and 49 and 50 and again in 52 into 53. And that's where we were last Sunday. And each of these chapters focused on the Messiah yet to come who would give his life for his children and bring salvation to humanity. Now as we come into chapter 61, Isaiah introduces us to one of the great themes of his epistle when he writes, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Isaiah again looking forward prophetically, to the coming of Christ, with the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me. That is one of the other major themes in the book of Isaiah. When he writes of God as a Sovereign Lord, and if Isaiah knew what he was talking about, Again and again and again and again, Isaiah reminds us of who God actually is. Not so much how we might think of him. Not so much how we might imagine who he is. But he writes of God in all of his unsurpassed glory and wonder and majesty. And here in this section where he's writing not only for his own generation, but for subsequent generations, he writes of the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord. Sovereign in his dealing with humanity. Sovereign in bringing to us salvation. Sovereign in bringing to pass his eternal purpose and will. And when we stop and pause and think of the sovereignty of God, it brings to us comfort and confidence 
This is a passage that we could put our head on as a pillow at night because it brings peace and comfort to us. Why? Because if He is a sovereign God, which Scripture teaches He is, He will never let us down, never give up on us. He will never be frustrated, never surprised. For He's a sovereign God, knowing all things and all people and all times, bringing to pass His purpose and His will. It is one of the central doctrines of our faith that He is a sovereign Lord. It is particularly significant for us, these words, because as we read them, they sound somewhat familiar. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And you think to yourself, now, where have I read that before? What, what, what other passage do I find that? Those words are familiar. And if you will come with me mentally into the New Testament, the opening chapters of Luke's Gospel, in Luke chapter 4, after the baptism of Jesus... The scriptures tell us that the Holy Spirit took him out into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights where he was hungry. And you will remember he went through a significant temptation at that point. And there was his father supporting, encouraging, equipping, strengthening, enabling him to stand firm against the temptation of Satan. And if Satan could somehow divert Jesus from his main purpose in coming to earth. At the very outset of his ministry, he would have defeated him before his ministry began. And as Jesus returns from the desert, and in fact the passage tells us this, it tells us that Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And when he spoke in the synagogue in Nazareth after returning from the desert, the passage he read was Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. That's how he begins his public ministry. He highlights the, his raison d'etre for being there. He summarizes in the words of Isaiah, which Isaiah knew some 700 years before. And here is a sovereign Lord bringing to pass His purpose and His will once again. His eternal purposes, the divine mission, the salvation of all of humanity was being launched. And the sovereign God in all of His redemptive purposes was coming to pass. And notice it again. 
He's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Good news. And it's good news. Why? Because when sin gets hold of a life, in all of its enticing, attractive, deceptive addiction, it tells to the individual that you are of no significance. You will never achieve anything or go anywhere. And who do you think you are to even begin to think that some God somewhere out there cares for you? But when the Holy Spirit breaks into our lives and touches us, heart and mind and soul, He reverses all of that. Reminding us that our significance and value come from our relationship with Him. That we are loved eternally by a sovereign God who way before the foundation of the world set His love and affection upon His children in order that He would draw them to Himself and transform their lives and bring them into relationship with Him. That's the good news of the gospel. That there is hope. That's the wonder of it. But notice what else he says. He's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the broken hearted. To proclaim freedom for the captives. Those who are enslaved by sin. Addicted to it. Overwhelmed by its tranquilizing effect on our lives. And here is Jesus reading from this passage saying those days are over. They are behind us. They have nothing to offer you. Later on in the passage, Isaiah talks of the Messiah coming to comfort those who mourn. I wonder if you're here this morning or watching at home, listening on a podcast, and you are saying, Richard, I hear what you're saying, I agree with what you're saying, but I have to tell you that over the last few months, with all that the restrictions and the impact of covid I've lost my job. It was the job I prayed for. It was the job I had dreamed about. I believed I was particularly gifted to carry out that job. I was planning for my future. As a family, we were thinking of moving home. And when I lost it back in May, and nothing has come since, I have to tell you, I've struggled. It's been awful. Why will God not answer me? Why will He not encourage me or bring peace when day after day I'm searching and searching and looking for work and wondering what on earth is He doing? Why does He not provide something for me? It doesn't feel like He comforts those who mourn. What about those of us in recent months struggled with a marriage relationship? 
it's teetering on the edge and threatening to fall into the abyss of divorce. And you might say, Richard, we no longer speak. We're holding it together for the sake of the children. There is no hope for us, no future. It's over. It's gone. Where is the comfort in that? Where is the peace of Christ in the middle of the most challenging days of my life? Richard, where is it? What about the young couple mourning because of a miscarriage? They haven't told another living soul. And oh, they longed for a baby just to hold and love and care for, to pray over. Would it have been so wrong to bring the baby to full term and then love and care for? Would that have upset some divine plan? How is it possible he comforts those who grieve and mourn when people are going through this? What of the death of a spouse or the death of a child? Finding yourself free-falling, descending into a terrifying downward spiral of grief and bereavement. How will you ever be able to come back from that? What is going on here? What of those of us who in the past have made bad decisions, poor choices? It's affected everything we have done since then. How do I get over those regrets? How do I deal with past hurts and pain and disappointment? Sometimes I find myself in conversation with a family where the teenagers are so angry at the parents. Parents are so angry with themselves, so angry at the circumstances of their lives. Quite frankly, they're incapable of listening. Where is the gospel then? Where is the promise of the good news Bind up the brokenhearted, seeking out those who are poor in spirit, comforting those who mourn. Sometimes we find ourselves in a place so dark, we don't know where to go. Richard, if he is a sovereign Lord, Why doesn't his love overwhelm me? If he is a sovereign Lord, why don't I feel his grace? If he is a sovereign Lord, why doesn't he answer my prayers and answer them today? A couple of years ago, I read of a wonderful article that talked about Japanese pottery. And the author informed the readers of how teapots 
and bowls for tea were made in Japan and went into all sorts of details and the ritual involved in a tea ceremony, the size and shape and distinct color, why it takes on a different patina down through the years, why the pots and the cups should never be separated if you are to engage in the ritual and the importance and symbolism of it all. But towards the end... The writer said this, that sometimes when a teacup or a bowl in Japan that is of value and significance drops and breaks, the owner will gather up the pieces, take it to someone who would know their way around pottery, treat it with concern and care, and not use superglue to put it back together. But we'll in fact use silver and we'll take molten silver to fill in the cracks and the breaks and then allow it to sit and watch and wait till the silver hardens and then polish off the rough edges. And the bowl or the teapot after that process, becomes much more significant, much more valuable because of the break and the previous damage and the healing and wholeness that is now there. Amidst our grief, the hurt, the pain, the disappointment, There are times when God works in our lives and pours His undiluted love into those cracks and breaks. He brings to us His grace and He fills in the pain of the past, those deep regrets. He deals with the cracks of grief and bereavement, the disappointments, the longings, the hopes, the dreams. And he fills them in lovingly, graciously, carefully over time in order to bring significance and value and wholeness to us. And often in the process, as he wraps his arms around us and whispers to our souls, he encourages us To let go. To let go of the pain and the grief and the hurt. To let go of that ever-descending spiral of pain and disappointment and lost dreams. And he holds us closer. And he reminds us that it's okay. I've got you. And you can let go. Sometimes we discover that we are hurt so badly, damaged internally, broken dreams, thinking you have no future. And let me say this with all of the gentle, careful, pastoral sense that I possibly can. Sometimes... It is those past wounds and hearts and pains that have come to define who we are. 
And maybe it's time to let them go. Maybe it's time to mentally, emotionally walk away and leave them in the past and reach out and take his hand and let him lead and guide and heal and change and transform. He promises to bind up the brokenhearted, to help those who mourn, Ever wondered what Jesus is truly like? That's what he's like. For he is a sovereign Lord in every single way. Sovereign over our lives. Sovereign in healing. Sovereign in forgiving. Sovereign in bringing wholeness. Sovereign in bringing a future. Sovereign in bringing hope. Because He is the Sovereign Lord who has come to bring good news to those who live in darkness. He is Sovereign Lord who has come to take away the hurt and the pain and the grief and bring comfort and pour it into our lives. That's why Isaiah is a remarkable book. That's why he speaks not only to his own generation, to our generation as well. And that's why we read in verses 10 and 11, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. Because Isaiah has known his touch and his grace and his comfort. May his word be a living reality for you this week. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you that in the midst of challenging circumstances, in darkest moments, that you, a loving God, enable us to let go of hearts and pains, Enable us to let go of unfulfilled dreams and ambitions. And you grant to us the ability to rest in you. Father, for those of us struggling this morning with open wounds, heal us. Those of us wrestling with tension in a marriage, help us please to slow down and pause and seek help. Those of us grieving over the death of a child or a spouse, enable us to rest in you. Pour your love into the fractured open wounds of our lives. Renew us, refresh us, and heal us, please. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.